Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. Today for Spirit in Action, we're back with Vasu Murti, author of They Shall Not Hurt or Destroy, Animal Rights and Vegetarianism in the Western Religious Traditions, and also The Liberal Case Against Abortion. Last time, the bulk of our discussion was about vegetarianism and the secular and religious support for it, including the Hindu concept of karma. This week, we'll still be talking about animal rights and respect, but we'll be focusing on abortion and the relationship between the two issues. I'd like to get us started off with a good respect-for-all-life mood, and there can hardly be a better way than by sharing a song from one of my very favorite performers, Carrie Newcomer. So, we'll continue our visit with Vasumurti, where we left off last time, after listening to Carrie Newcomer's song, Do No Harm. John Roth had a heart like flame He believed all souls were loved the same He packed up his hopes and his family And moved to Ohio There in the deep dark wilderness With a newborn son he soon was blessed Raise him up in the ways of the old prophets Named him Isaiah Rock Do no harm, shed no blood The only law here is love We can call the kingdom down here on earth Beat your swords in the plows Don't be afraid, I'll show you your eyes to the skies all is holy here the forest people soon came near his message to the red children clear we can build the peaceable kingdom here in the shadow of these trees they planted oats and skies all is holy here 
that it's absolutely required by Scripture. Even if you say that, that doesn't take us very far, because we see churches taking positions on a number of issues that aren't clearly spelled out in Scripture either. Exodus 21 says the fetus is not a person. If two men are fighting and a pregnant woman is injured and the fetus is killed, they have to recompensate upon the damage inflicted upon her, not the fetus. And if the woman is killed, it's punishable by murder. Apologists say, well, the fetus is given some concern, even if it doesn't have personhood. But then in the New Testament, Paul claims Mosaic law is garbage and it's abolished, so whatever concern might have been given to the unborn is gone. And some Christians say they don't even have to follow Paul, because Paul claims the risen Jesus says to him three times, my grace is sufficient for thee. So they use that as an excuse to say, they don't even have to follow Paul, which doesn't make any sense. On the one hand, in Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is warning drunkards, thieves, homosexuals, idolaters, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. On the other hand, he's saying, oh, three times, you can do whatever you want. Okay, well, then why is he giving all these moral instructions to begin with? It doesn't make any sense. And the traditional understanding is that Paul had a thorn in his side and asked the reason Jesus what to do about it, and Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for thee. It was a response to a specific problem, not a license to do as one pleases. And the late Janet Regina Highland, who was raised Catholic but went on to become an evangelical minister and a vegan and author of God's Covenant with Animals, she said they're quoting Paul out of context because Paul in Corinthians says elsewhere, he said, you know, keep my body under subjection lest I become a castaway and not practice what I have preached. So it's like, I agree, there's no way you can make an absolute airtight case. Regina Highland said that herself. She said there's no way you can make an absolute airtight case. We have to argue in terms of religion highest ideals and social progress. 
Of course, progressives see those things that way. With conservatives, it's a lot harder to prove that. You know, if this were the 18th century and you were trying to convince people to abolish slavery, that's not spelled out in scripture either. So a conservative Christian might say, well, we don't have to free our slaves. That's work. You're asking us to do activity that isn't required of our faith. If it were 100 years ago, we don't have to give women suffrage or equality. That's work. You're asking us to engage in activity or effort or whatever that isn't a part of our faith. 50 years ago, why aren't the Christians supporting civil rights? Would they be saying, oh, that's work, you know, kind of smugly and glibly? I don't know. There are compelling arguments, but it's the progressives who are responding in this direction. We see that, at least that's in my experience. The Christians who are responding favorably to the message of animal rights and vegetarianism, you know, making bread available to feed the hungry, grain for the hungry, etc., are the liberals, the liberal denominations. Uh, Vegetarian interpretation of Scripture is possible, but it's the kind of interpretation that appeals to progressives, like an anti-capital punishment interpretation of Scripture. It would be great to have the conservatives on board with us. You'd think they would understand, just like they see a Abortion is a crime, and that doesn't spell that clearly in Scripture either. You'd think they'd understand, like, oh, animals have the right to life. Just as we oppose stem cell research, the animal rights people are opposed to experimenting upon animals. Beyond that, there is collective karma. If you know we're killing animals by the billions, it comes back to us. This was documented by John Robbins in Diet for a New America. John Robbins was influenced by Eastern philosophies, Hinduism and Buddhism, and towards the end of the final chapter in his Pulitzer Prize-nominated book, Diet for a New America, he begins with a quote by reincarnationist Christian mystic Edgar Cayce, who makes a comment about karma. And then John Robbins proceeds to document the collective karma that we're incurring by killing animals by the billions in terms of the ecological crises we're facing. As one example that I've given before, if you were a Green Party activist and you were saying like, you know, well, we should treat animals justly and humanely, but first let's address the water crisis. That's more pressing. Then the animals will come next. And I would point out, well, according to statistics, not just from John Robbins' Diet for a New America, but more recently in their 2007 book, Please Don't Eat the Animals, the mother and daughter writing team of uh, Jennifer Horseman and Jamie Flowers point out that the waste of, of water and other resources that go into a meat center diet if we weren't killing animals, there wouldn't be a water crisis. So it might be hard to convince people that abortion and war are the collective karma for killing animals, but I'm bold enough to assert if we weren't killing animals, these problems wouldn't exist, so they have to be addressed first. You can't say, well, first let's address the abortion crisis and then animals will come next. That's a pretty bold statement. Let's talk a little bit about abortion here. What I'd like to start first is the liberal critique, as you see it, of the pro-life movement about their inconsistency. And then we'll go on to the reverse critique. During the 80s, people were always asking questions about along these lines on Usenet. One woman who ironically called herself Terry, she was asking, if pro-lifers claim to be pro-life, why are they supporting war, capital punishment, etc., etc.? John Morrow responded as a pro-life, well, he was, he was more of a liberal Christian. He said that it was his opposition to capital punishment that led him to oppose abortion. He said he supported all what he called blocking methods of contraception. Maria Krasinski, in 1999, is a Catholic lesbian on Democrats for Life told me via personal email correspondence the correct term is barrier methods. But anyway, John Morrow said in the Bible I read, condemning others is a good way to condemn yourself. You know, judge not lest you be judged, etc. John Morrow compared discrimination against the unborn to homophobia and xenophobia. He said that he believed health care in the U.S. should be federalized, i.e. socialized like it is in the U.K. He said he supported sex education as well, but he disagreed with how it was taught. He said that the phrase 
safe sex because it's impossible to engage in sexual activity without risking pregnancy. He said he preferred the term safer sex because, you know, when you engage in sexual activity, you're risking pregnancy. He gave an analogy once. He said, you can engage in sexual activity. The quickest way to avoid pregnancy is not, no, the easiest way to avoid pregnancy is not to. But if you engage in sexual activity, you're running the risk of pregnancy and you're responsible for any children you conceive. And he said, just as you can drive, you know, the safest way to avoid an accident is to not drive. But if you drive, you're responsible for any pedestrians you hit because pedestrians have the right of way. He said, similarly, I, I say that the fetus has the right of way. He said, it's ridiculous to say, I have a right to engage in sexual activity and not risk pregnancy because that sounds as stupid as saying, I have a right to drive my car into a brick wall and not expect to get hurt. You know, you can't engage in sexual activity without risking pregnancy. He, he was saying, I don't even have a problem with that statement. But then he said, what with taking one step further, saying, should I be injured when I drive my car into a brick wall? You know, I have the right to kill others to heal myself, like for skin grafts or whatever, etc. Should I become pregnant because of my careless activity? I have the right to kill someone. And Gary Samuelson, who was a conservative on Usenet, commented that abortion is just getting someone out of the way who's cramping your style. And the argument is that recognizing the rights of another class of beings limits our freedoms and our choices, and it requires a change in our personal lifestyle. You no longer have the choice of, you know, being able to own slaves or commit domestic violence, etc. If animals have rights, you can't commit violence against them either. Your freedoms are, and choices are restricted. So the question is, do the prenatal have rights? Pro-lifers focus entirely on the unborn to the exclusion of everything else, and that is how a lot of liberals see it, is that they ignore other social justice issues, so they're often asked, well, what about capital punishment? What about war? And now that animal rights are becoming a mainstream political issue, it's only fair that you know pro-life conservatives be asked, well, what about the un- what about animals? Now, how do you justify an extravagant lifestyle that's taking from the poor to feed the rich, etc. That can hardly be called pro-life in a literal sense of the word. You know, if we run out of water, we die. You know, water irrigation makes it possible for cities to bloom in the desert. California is, is the desert. You know, what to speak of Cairo or Tel Aviv or so many other places. You know, so these are all interconnected in some way. And pro-lifers seem to be focused on the unborn to the exclusion of everything else. That was what my friend Aaron commented back in the 80s. He was saying, you know, they call themselves pro-life, but what? What's their position on capital punishment? Then I said, what's your philosophy? A murderer has a right to life, but an unborn child doesn't. And Aaron kind of shifted in company and said, well, when does life begin? <laughs> and it's like, well, fertilization, that's a scientific fact. And Dr. Wilkie, of, formerly of National Right to Life, says pro-life should use the scientific term fertilization rather than conception, which sounds kind of religious and emotional. So these questions come up all the time. And uh, Aaron commented as well, and this is a valid concern. He said, oh, Republicans are great for the unborn before they're born, but once they're born, they lose all interest and everything. That was the comment that Robert Casey, pro-life Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, made about the pro-life Republicans. He said the, pro- the anti-abortion Republicans care for the child only before birth and do nothing for them afterwards. They drop them at birth. That was a comment that Barney Frank made as a Democratic congressman. He said, for Republicans, life begins at conception and ends at birth. So it seems to me social services care for the needy. This is the area where pro-life Republicans are most vulnerable because they just seem kind of callous and indifferent in this regard. It's not just a question of like fighting wars out of self-defense. We've seen adventurism abroad, not just Vietnam, but Iraq. Now that Osama bin Laden has been killed, what's our purpose for being in Afghanistan? So these are valid questions. And you know, you just, if you're going to adopt a moniker like pro-life, you have better well be prepared 
to live up to it. Uh, or maybe just say, well, we're really just anti-abortion. You know, we're not really against all these other things. A similar statement was made, I think it was actress Gretchen Weiler in a 1980s video from the mid-80s, uh, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, when she was saying, when people say they love animals, I say, please say you love cats and dogs because you cannot eat the object of your compassion. So similarly, if you're really pro-life, this is common, this is leveled all the time but on the left at pro-lifers. If you're really pro-life, then why don't we see it manifest the things that you do? It's perfectly reasonable for progressives to hold anti-abortionists accountable in this regard. How do you justify a lifestyle that goes against what you believe? And if it could be shown, maybe it can't be shown directly that there's a direct cause and effect relationship between the killing of animals and the killing of human beings through war and abortion, it'd be hard to document this in secular political language, you know, food economy, environment, war, and so forth. But if you're engaging in a lifestyle that is directly thwarting the cause you believe in, it should be questioned. Like, you know, if you're a Green Party activist and you're saying, well, you know, we'll get to animals after we've ended the water crisis, but by supporting the factory farms, you're contributing to the water crisis, you're sabotaging your cause because you're contributing to the water crisis rather than ending it by supporting factory farming. How do you justify that? It's perfectly reasonable to ask pro-lifers, you know, if you can show a cause and effect relationship in this regard, how do you justify killing animals if it's thwarting your own cause as a pro-life activist? That was what animal activists realized early on. I mean, literature from the 80s, they were saying, one person saying, well, I do enough for animals without having to be a vegetarian. And they're saying, that's not likely as nearly 75 times the animals are killed for food that are killed in medical and laboratories, 500 times greater than the number killed in pounds, 30 times greater than the number killed by hunters and trappers. Similarly, like those on the left, it's perfectly reasonable to ask, well, if you, why do you stop caring about the unborn once they're born? The conservatives might say, well, we don't think that, you know, a new government program is the way to solve these things. Well, we're not seeing the, pro we aren't seeing the private sector doing much in this regard, nor individual charities. I, I doubt if individual charities could handle it on that kind of a level that would be required. So we can debate these things, but at least, first you have to acknowledge that there's a clear crisis. Diagnosis is 90% of the cure. If we want to end animal suffering, first you have to acknowledge that it's an injustice. So similarly, uh, the pro-life, to give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they do see these as serious issues, but they just feel that a uh, different strategy is necessary. That's the conclusion I come to in the liberal case against abortion, is that both the right and the left, like the Vietnam analogy, towards the end of the 1960s, both the right and the left came to agree the war was wrong. They merely advocated different strategies for ending it. So you may not agree with me that ceasing to kill animals is the solution to ending the abortion crisis. I agree that it's a bold statement, and I'm not trying to sound brash or making it either, but well, we don't see you proposing any other strategies. All we see are the same solutions which haven't gotten us anywhere. Pack the courts with conservatives who could easily strip us of our right to privacy, you know, which were, were forming this previous decisions to Roe v. Wade, Griswold versus Connecticut and others and so forth, and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. Except for what? Who? Scalia? Maybe Clarence Thomas? None of the justices have expressed interest in overturning Roe v. Wade. It seems to me that uh, there's plenty of reasons for liberals not to take the anti-abortionist position seriously. The right wing tends to articulate it as a religious view. We rarely hear them articulated as a secular human rights issue. Some voices do. There are intelligent voices in the pro-life movement. You know, George Will, conservative columnist, once wrote a pro-life column in the 80s where he gave the example of his handicapped son. Others speak in terms of, like, the pro-choice mentality gives rise to eugenics mindset, you know, like the March of Dimes, you know, saying that every child should be wanted, and if not wanted, kill, is what the, uh, you know, the um, pro-life critics say. And the March of Dimes is also under fire from the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine because they endorse the experiments on animals. And so that's an area where pro-life and pro-animal people could find common ground.
what to speak of the fact that on a vegan diet, the world could support a population several times its present size. So that kind of does away with the argument that they're of overpopulation, the threat of overpopulation as a need for abortion as birth control. But it's like the pro-life movement is inconsistent in a number of areas. They tend to articulate their position as a religious belief rather than as a secular human rights issue. They tend to ignore other directly relevant secular human rights issues and what to speak of the injustices of war and capital punishment and so forth. The only people I've seen addressing these things is the consistent ethic movement, and I commend them for it. Well, but now that animal rights are becoming a mainstream political issue, it's reasonable to ask, well, what's your stand on animal cruelty? Especially if it's thwarting the things you believe in. Why do you obsess over the silent screams of the unborn, you know, which in that early stage of development, if there's no brain or central nervous system, it might just be a reflex action. How do you obsess over the silent screams of the unborn while ignoring the very real screams of animals? How do you justify taking grain away from the hungry that could be used to feed, clothe, and shelter human beings, and you call yourselves pro-life? These are valid questions which ought to be asked. Why does species membership make the difference in how we treat a being? Chimpanzees share 98 to 99% of our DNA. So, you know, you're silent or you condone the experimenting on chimpanzees while protecting mentally handicapped children. These are children like the mentally handicapped. They're never going to have the potential to exhibit the kind of rational thought that most humans exhibit upon full development. Why are we protecting them? Just because they're a member of our species? Previously, our moral community of wood is defined by our race or our tribe, our nation, etc. Why should it end with species membership? Native Americans were once killed for sport. So that means membership in the human species was never the criterion for personhood. Blacks were once considered three-fifths of a person or whatever. So similarly, why should personhood be confined to the human species? You know, these are the kind of questions that should be asked the pro-lifers. And the pro-lifers on the left, they respond when you point these things out. Cal Crossett of Democrats for Life, when I contacted her in 1995, sending her one of my manuscripts, she responded favorably and spoke to me over the phone, said she was with the anti-hunger group Bread for the World. They've advocated, like, abstaining from meat on certain days of the week to make grain available for the hungry and so forth. She said she was a vegetarian out of concern for global hunger, which is a genuine social justice issue and a valid concern. It's not narcissistic, like wanting to lose weight or whatever, etc. You know, that is a genuine social justice issue. The late Regina Highland is an evangelical minister and a vegan acknowledged it as such. I think it was PETA. Um, I received an email from an animal rights group where there an interview with Reverend Al Sharpton where he explained the inspirations which caused him to go vegetarian and everything. And he was citing Coretta Scott King as an example. And so on the left, they're responding favorably to these things. And that was what I said earlier was that a vegetarian interpretation of scripture is kind of like an anti-capital punishment interpretation of scripture. It'll appeal to the progressives and everything. And we see that. The ones who are responding favorably are the progressives. So it is reasonable. The critique of many on the left is that the anti-abortion side on the right phrases abortion as though or a religious issue rather than a secular human rights issue applicable to everyone. That is the second part of my question. And so the critique from the left towards the right is they're inconsistent. Is the reciprocal critique equally valid that liberals are inconsistent? They say it's important to not do capital punishment on this horrible murderer. They say it's important not to kill someone in war. But then when it comes to a human fetus, an unborn child, they say that's none of our business. 
That is the valid critique. That is level that those on the left. Rosemary Botcher, past president of Feminists for Life, in writing in the Tallahassee Democrat, said as much. She said, the same people who wax hysterical at the thought of executing after countless appeals, a criminal convicted of some revolting crime would have insisted upon his mother's right to have him killed unconditionally while he was still innocent. The same people who organized the boycott of the Nestle Company for its marketing of infant formula in underdeveloped nations would have approved the killing of those exploited infants just a few months before. The same people who talked incessantly of human rights are willing to deny the most helpless and vulnerable of all human beings the most important right of all. I agree. It is inconsistent. But I've seen the opposite, actually. On the left, at least in the 80s on Usenet, the liberals were willing to concede, you know, we might be unjustly stepping on someone here. We rarely see conservatives acknowledge that, you know, when it comes to animal rights, we're deliberately violating the rights of animals on a daily basis without thinking about it. Or we claim it's our religion permits it, which doesn't go anywhere. Some religions permit abortion. Pro-life are quick to defend themselves like on religious grounds rather than on secular grounds. We don't have to be vegetarian or whatever. And they want to be defended as well. They want people to defend them. Like, they don't have to be vegetarian. But we don't hear them likewise say, like, they belong to the United Church of Christ. They don't have to be pro-life. Or they're Unitarians. They don't have to be pro-life. Or Judaism, you know, their religion permits abortion. They don't see the fetus as a person. So, you know, they can have an abortion if they want, etc. You know, we don't hear them say that. That is where your moral relativistic thinking inevitably leads. The conclusion is you either have to write a book to try to show all the world's religions support the pro-life position, which would be hard to do. That was the approach taken by writer Stephen Rosen, where he tried to show in Food for the Spirit in 1987 that all the world's great religions support the vegetarian way of life. Or you can just say, well, let's not deal with religion. Let's just you know, use secular arguments. Secular arguments are religion neutral, and they're applicable to everyone, including atheists and agnostics. That's politics, and that is the proper form to debate these issues. So let's go back to the broad scope of arguments about abortion. There are certainly arguments that have been captivating to me, and maybe less so now than they used to be, that said, number one, as long as the fetus cannot live separate from the woman, there's an unusual dependency, and that's what the Supreme Court ruled. They said that as long as the fetus was not viable, you couldn't do abortion. So that's a very particular condition. I don't know if we have any other equivalent of that outside of a woman. So is she required to hold to a higher level of care for this child inside her, including if maybe she got pregnant because of incest or because of rape, which are, of course, very small number of the actual pregnancies. But the point is, do we hold her to a higher standard of responsibility? Do we compromise her rights further than we do anyone else's? So, for instance, the father who was responsible for that child growing inside, is he held to the same level of responsibility as that woman? I would say he should be. John Morrow was arguing on using that thing that stronger paternity laws might help, teaching men that when a woman says no, she means no, that you know women are not playthings for men or objects of sexual exploitation, etc. How effective that would be, I don't know. My friend Amir Thomas, a pro-choice feminist, commented around that time when I mentioned these things that John Morrow was advocating. She's kind of saying, uh, good luck with that. You know, We can't even get men to pay paternity or child support. She has a valid point. Of course, that's more law enforcement, just like arguing, well, how would we enforce laws against abortion? That's more of a law enforcement issue, and it may or may not be practical. First, we have to agree that the fetus is a person and should be protected. Not everyone is in agreement on that. Then we have to decide what kind of strategy are we going to take to protect them once we've decided that they're persons. I don't smoke, drink, or do any drugs, but I mean, Ira Glasser of the ACLU points out that the surveillance technology, eavesdropping, hidden cameras, and so forth, all that was developed during the Prohibition era, and still they couldn't stop people from drinking, etc. 
and prohibition it isn't a radical statement to say the prohibition of alcohol in the United States failed. You know, many civil liberties groups now are saying maybe we should be looking at ending marijuana prohibition as well, which is 75% of the drug war anyway, and it's safer than alcohol and tobacco. But I digress. Anyway, the fact is that whether or not we should turn America into a police state, etc., one nation under surveillance, is of course itself another is another matter entirely. First, we have to debate the personhood of the unborn. Everyone has differing views on it, secular and religious. Everyone is entitled to a fair hearing in this regard. So first, we have to arrive at a consensus that we are unjustly stepping on someone. The liberals on Newsnet were more in the 80s were more willing to concede that point than today. We see conservatives acknowledging, like, yes, killing animals is unjust, etc., etc. Usually, the conservatives hide behind their religious beliefs rather than acknowledge that killing animals is a moral wrong. So that, that is in my experience. But you do make a valid point that the liberals are being inconsistent in this regard when they go on about social injustices, war, capital punishment, killing people unjustly, etc. But then they look the other way at abortion, they try to rationalize it away, etc. But I found more often than not, liberals are more willing to concede on abortion. We might be unjustly stepping on someone. They're more, they're more willing to acknowledge it than conservatives are when it comes to animals. Even Romans 14, even if you argue that the issue on Paul's mind was not the ethical treatment of animals. Norm Phelps, in his book, The Dominion of Love, Animal Rights According to the Bible, Norm was raised a fundamentalist Christian, became an atheist at an early age. In 1984, he became a Buddhist. He's warned the Dalai Lama that the Dalai Lama should return to a vegetarian diet and that if he doesn't, Buddhism in the West is likely to become a feel-good philosophy that appeals to yuppies and New Agers. But um, Norm Phelps says that that issue, the ethical treatment of animals, which has motivated great thinkers and visionaries from Pythagoras to Susan B. Anthony to Gandhi to Tolstoy to Leonardo da Vinci, etc. That issue isn't even on Paul's radar screen. He said for Paul the issue is just whether or not the meat was offered to pagan idols and whether or not one should eat food offered to pagan idols with regard to vegetarianism. The history of the early church suggests otherwise, that Christianity was a vegetarian religion. It started out pacifist and vegetarian like Buddhism. So the serious moral gravity involved in taking the lives of animals, I found conservative Christians rarely see it that way. Liberals admit with abortion, you know, this is a serious issue. We might be violating someone's rights here. I don't see that with conservatives with regards to animals. Animals. Quite the opposite. They think they can do as they please. You just kind of laugh and scoff at it. They don't seem to take animal issues seriously. They're obsessing over stem cell research, you know, while uh, ignoring the research on sentient animals. And the opposition to animal research is a longer history. The American Anti-Vivisection Society was founded in 1883 by Carol Earl White, nearly a century before PETA, which was founded in 1980. So Christian conservatives, the ones who dominate the pro-life movement, they're the ones who are kind of ridiculing the idea that animals have rights. Whereas liberals are, you know, some of them are kind of flippant about it, you know, like Dave Butler making the statement, abortion and slavery, not even close. If you believe it's wrong to eat meat, should your morality impose upon everyone else? But for the most part, you know, you'll find liberals agree it is a serious human rights issue, and a lot of liberals advocate different strategies for ending it. The Colorado Peace Mission in Boulder, Colorado, this is documented in my book, The Liberal Case Against Abortion, they're saying, want to stop abortions? Make them unnecessary. Provide everyone with choice of who to engage in sex with, safe and affordable birth control, you know, open arms, talk about sex, etc., etc., and so forth. So they're advocating a liberal solution, of course. And in the 70s, Jesse Jackson, as a reverend, 1977, was saying how um, he approved of the uh, backseat blowjob scene in the original uncut R-rated version of Saturday Night Fever because they later released a PG version for the younger crowd. I was a teenager back then, so I remember all this, but he approved of the backseat blowjob scene and, and the R-rated version of Saturday Night Fever because it showed young people what to do, you know, should they be in the, in the heat of passion, in intercourse, and they haven't got easy access to contraception, what to do. But Reagan 
a presidential candidate. Three years later, Robert Shear was interviewing him, and Reagan was complaining about young people having access to contraception, saying that undermines the authority of the family. Robert Shear asked him, wouldn't that also prevent the unplanned pregnancies you're so concerned about? And Reagan said, whatever happened to saying no? Robert Shear was saying, was amazing. is Reagan out of touch with reality? Is he unaware of the changes that have happened in American society since the 60s? Reagan appeared to be out of touch in this regard and so forth. And I've noticed, maybe it's deliberate hypocrisy on the part of Christian conservatives. They're enjoying the past 500 years of secular social progress. You know, the abolition of slavery, the emancipation of women, democracy and representative government, the separation of church and state, birth control, the sexual revolution. They're enjoying all this, and then they have the gall to claim they claim to be Bible believers. So we have logical, ethical inconsistencies on both the liberal and conservative sides of this issue, though you clearly think that there's more hope of getting liberals to face their inconsistencies than getting conservatives to do the same. It's obvious that you've gone through the research and analysis to make you extremely well prepared to look at abortion from virtually any direction. In the first part of this interview, you were talking mainly about the justification or lack thereof for hurting, harming, and eating animals, looking at the concern from Eastern and Western religious points of view and also from a secular perspective. And now we're focusing on abortion. And what is unique in my experience is the way you link the broad range of peace and life issues. Many, maybe most people, don't see them as related. They do see peace and animal rights and abortion as separate, non-related issues. What if it's necessary to cease to kill animals uh, in order to end the abortion crisis? I've given the analogies of karma and cause and effect to you earlier. You know, like if someone were to say, if a Green Party activist were saying, well, let's first end the water crisis and then we'll worry about factory farming and killing animals and raising animals for food is causing the water crisis. So, you know, that's kind of stupid. You know, take that kind of approach. So similarly, if it can be shown that there's a direct cause and effect relationship, collective karma, killing animals causes the abortion crisis, would that be enough to convince you know, our friends in the peace and pro-life movement, so it could be shown that there's a direct relationship, food economy, environment and war, etc., between the killing of human animal beings and the killing of human beings, would this be enough to convince our friends in the peace and pro-life movements to become vegetarian, to go vegan, etc.? Doing so would be literally pro-life. As you've already said, good luck on getting an open response from the more doctrinaire end of the spectrum. I guess there is also a real inconsistency within conservative circles about how to deal with life issues. Is it something the government should regulate, or is it a private religious domain? Does the religious right want to legislate religious morals, or don't they? Conservatives may talk about how, you know, we want religion in the public square and all this, but they take uh, advantage of church-state separation when it suits them, saying, well, the government was never intended to create a state church, or the, that means that the government can't intrude in the affairs of religions, you know, and, like, dictate, like, you have to read from the Green Bible, or a certain portion of your clergy have to be LGBTs. Just, they would never stand for that. Sean Hannity, as a conservative, was warning about, you know, in the name of political correctness, churches not being able to preach against homosexuality, or the future in which churches which uh, don't recognize same-sex marriages, lose their tax-exempt status, etc. So even conservatives see the advantage of church-state separation, keeping the government from meddling in religious affairs. And liberals see it as a way of keeping a theocracy at bay, you know, freedom from religion. And a lot of religious groups call themselves that, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, etc. And so a lot of anti-religious groups. So church-state separation is a good thing. You're listening to Spirit in Action. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, for this Northern Spirit Radio production. Website, northernspiritradio.org, where you can listen to all of our archives 
find links to our guests and other info, and where you can leave us comments and feedback. Write and let us know what you think and where you're listening from. Maybe you found us on your radio dial somewhere across the nation, perhaps from our website or our RSS feed, or maybe via iTunes. Wherever and whoever you are, we look forward to hearing from you. Today's Spirit in Action guest is Vasu Murti. He's author of two published books and lots of other articles, pamphlets, and books in the making. They Shall Not Hurt Nor Destroy explores our relationship to animals from a Western religious perspective, though Vasu is himself of a Hindu family. And this hour, we're focusing on his second book, The Liberal Case Against Abortion. I think most of us have come to assume over the past couple decades that to be a liberal is to be pro-choice, while conservatives have adopted the name pro-life. In the liberal case against abortion, Vasu explores the secular reasons for a deep concern for human life before birth, inextricably linked to Vasu's concern for all sentient life. Now back to you, Vasu. We were just talking about especially conservative attitudes about separation of church and state, how they tend to retreat behind that constitutional barrier sometimes to protect their prerogatives. Obviously, it would be a stretch to force them, or really anyone, to support the idea of the rights of animals. I don't think there are a lot of conservatives on the animal rights bandwagon, but at least on the left, you've got supporters. And there are conservatives, like uh, my friend Dave Goggin, who I know through the San Francisco Vegetarian Society, he dismisses the threat of global warming. You know, he was saying it's like a secular apocalypse. And he was arguing he gets his news from conservative blogs, but he's already vegan and dedicated to the cause of equal rights and justice for animals. So then there are conservatives in the animal rights movement. And Ingrid Newkirk was the one who said it should be bipartisan. In an interview with Jackie Dove here in the Bay Area, 1999, she was saying, just like we all agree, cruelty to children is wrong. John Stuart Mill said the reason for legal intervention in the case of children applies not less strongly in the case of those unfortunate slaves, the animals. So just as we can all agree, whether you're a Republican, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're pro-life, whether you're pro-choice, we can all agree cruelty to children is wrong. We should all agree cruelty to animals is wrong. That was the approach Sarah Foster took when I first heard her speak. Sarah Foster, a feminist for life, she spoke at Stanford University. She was asking me, what is the position on abortion with regards to animal rights activists? And I said, we're divided. And she said, understandingly, the Children's Defense Fund is also divided on abortion. So she could immediately see the connection. Children, animals, just as differing children's advocates are going to take differing views on abortion, that's going to be expected of animal advocates too. So um, certainly conservatives are welcome, but I generally see the flack I'm picking up or that I'm receiving is that the conservatives are inimical to animal rights. So my experience has been, I could be wrong, you know, Bruce Friedrich of PETA at a PETA workshop in 2008, he spoke favorably of conservatives who take action on behalf of animals. He spoke favorably of Bob Dole. He spoke favorably of Pat Buchanan, of all people, and saying that, you know, on Pat Buchanan's website, conservative website, they were speaking favorably of concern for animals and so forth. Matthew Scully, speechwriter for George W. Bush, and Sarah Palin, I think, he wrote the book Dominion. He took a dominionist position that humans have dominion over the other animals, but that means we should be treating animals with compassion. And that was his take on things. He mentioned some of the worst injustices 
Santa's, the Safari Club, and you know some of the worst abuses of factory farming, which is fine, but it doesn't go far enough. What's wrong with advocating veganism? What's wrong with telling others it's wrong to kill animals? You know, religious communities take stand on moral issues all the time. You know, like racism is wrong, or you know it's wrong to kill the unborn, poverty, social injustice. Religious communities take stand on moral issues all the time. What is wrong with saying it's wrong to kill animals? And you know, even among liberals, when the book Skinny Bitch was released by Rory Friedman and Kim Bardwin. It was telling young girls, you know, how to stop eating crap and start looking fabulous. And um, it was well received by the vegan community here in the Bay Area, Veg News, which was a slick, trendy vegan publication out of San Francisco. They were raving about the book and everything. In secular society, even among liberals, the reaction was different. In Salon.com in 2007 or 2008, they were dismissing it as, you know, a thinly disguised vegan manifesto. So I commented, oh, what's wrong with the vegan manifesto? What is wrong with telling others not to kill animals? So, there's plenty of blame to go around when it comes to the crisis we face. But you first have to acknowledge that it's a crisis. We, before we're going to end abortion, we have to all agree that the unborn are persons, or there has to be enough of a consensus for us to agree on that, that the unborn are persons that are being unjustly killed. I don't see that happening. The Christians aren't exactly approaching people of other faiths, like the Hindu community, in a spirit of friendship and understanding. The Bhagavad Gita is one of the world's great scriptures, like the Bible or the Quran. Does Krishna discuss abortion in the Bhagavad Gita? What's your take on things? Do you believe in karma and reincarnation? What strategy should we be pursuing to end the crisis? Do you even see it as a crisis? Some religions don't regard the unborn as persons, so they don't see a crisis. Even in secular politics, when the Webster decision was going before the Supreme Court, in the spring of 1989, there was a huge rally, pro-choice rally, in Washington, D.C. There was a liberal politician, Democrat, who was speaking before the crowd, and he was saying, kind of glibly, we haven't killed anyone. We've saved women's lives. Not seeing the unborn as persons. There's a blind spot when it comes to liberals, when it comes to the unborn, and with conservatives, the blind spot is with regard to animals. Pro life literature shows a oh, ultrasound photo of an unborn child and says, when they tell you abortion is a private decision between a woman and a doctor, they're ignoring someone. And it shows the ultrasound photo of the unborn. Similarly, conservatives are ignoring the killing of all these animals. Where do you think your meat comes from? You know, an animal has to kill. You haven't got the guts to kill an animal yourself. You pay someone else to kill the animal for you. Then you go around ridiculing vegetarians as being weak or whatever. And then you go around saying, you know, like, we're, oh, we're omnivores. What kind of omnivore or predator pays someone else to kill the animal for them? And, and it's causing all these other problems. That we're inflicting all this, you know, we're clogging our arteries, inflicting our, all kinds of misery on our bodies and upon the environment. Somehow, you know, we've deluded ourselves into thinking we need meat to survive when actually the opposite is true. My own personal experience in, in, in political activism has been that the liberals concede abortion is not just a religious issue, it's also a human rights issue. Many liberals, some liberals do see it as purely a religious issue, like, oh, you're born again, you know, so, uh, you know, your views on abortion don't apply to me. But I've yet to see the conservative side acknowledge with regards to animals that it is a serious moral issue and that they really ought to be addressing it. And there's plenty of scope within the pro-life movement for them to see the direct connections. If pro-lifers have trouble seeing it as a direct pro-life issue, like a sanctity of life issue, the way a lot of pro-lifers look at abortion and euthanasia, for example, there's no reason why they can't see it as a directly related cause, like women's rights and civil rights. Rose Evans, who published Harmony, Voices for a Just Future, a peace and justice periodical on the religious left, she told me on one occasion that the abolitionists didn't take women's suffrage seriously. They were saying, oh, we'll get to that in the future, blah, blah, etc. And that's the reaction I see I encounter from a lot of pro-lifers, the religious kind, certainly, when it comes to animal issues. They don't see it as directly relevant. But if it could be shown that it is a solution to the abortion crisis, would they be willing to listen? And at the very least, they should consider it as a possible solution, like 
the Vietnam analogy I give at the end of the liberal case against abortion, both the right and the left were advocating different strategies for ending the war. Nixon claimed to have a secret plan. George McGovern said, I have no secret plan. I have a public plan. I will halt the bombing on Inauguration Day. In either case, they were advocating different strategies for ending the war. Similarly, the right and the left may have different strategies for ending the abortion crisis. But first you have to acknowledge that there is a crisis to speak of. I just see a lot of resistance coming from the conservative side. That is my own experience. I could be in the wrong. Again, they shall not hurt or destroy has gotten a very favorable response from Christian vegetarians and vegans, of whom I have the deepest respect. Whether their political leanings are liberal or conservative, for many of them I do not know. Rachel McNair, I don't know, you know Rachel, yeah, we've talked about it. You know Rachel personally. And in the course of her own activism, she's made friends with those on the conservative side of the political spectrum, although her views are very much those of a political liberal. Are you able to connect with people on the not progressive side of the spectrum? Are you able to connect and talk and advocate in those areas? Because you do have, as they do, concern about abortion. Are you able to communicate with them? In certain instances, yes. When Kel McMahon, a Protestant pastor, contacted me, and I think it was in 2004, he cited the example of, you know, like the, the Bible doesn't really seem to support a vegetarian message. Certainly with Christianity, he was saying he gave the example of the parable of the return of the prodigal son in Luke's Gospel, you know, how the father says, you know, when overjoyed that his wayward son had returned, he says, you know, kill the fatted calf. He doesn't say, break up the veggie burgers. That was Kel McManus taking the I said, that's true. And I cited the example of Christian theologian, I think he's a Presbyterian minister, or was, Dr. Upton Clara Ewing, who cited that that parable suffered a deliberate interpretation, or interpolation by uh, later generations of copyists, because it looks kind of tactlessly exposed. The father is saying things like, bring forth the fatted calf, and killing an animal seen as the only way to celebrate. And the other son, who, who had never left his father's side, was saying things like, Thou never even gave me a kid that I might make merry. And Dr. Ewing comments, Wine is the traditional way that, to make merry, even in the, even in the Bible, etc. You know, not killing animals. And suggests that that parable might have been messed with. What I said to you earlier, I said to Kel, was if you're a biblical literalist, I might not be able to convince you. But there are compelling reasons why vegetarianism, the values it represents, are at the core of Christianity and why it's consistent with, you know, with what Christianity teaches them. And Kel can see what the point I was trying to make is, you know, if you're talking about sharing your bread with the hungry, if you're talking about feeding the poor and clothing the naked, as Jesus commands, you'll find it easier to do these things. You're thwarting your own cause on a meat-centered diet. Uh, even Peter Singer asked that question. He said, those who say humans come first, what are they doing eating meat? when that means not just the majority of animals are being killed for meat, but also 40% of the world's grain or whatever is being fed to livestock, resources that can be used to feed the poor. Peter is now challenging those who think they can be environmental activists to go vegan if they really care about the planet. So on the left, these issues are slowly making inroads. On the left, they're debating, you know, grain-fed versus grass-fed, factory farming versus free-range, locavores, sustainable agriculture. Now, obviously, not everyone on the left is vegan, but at least these issues are being discussed. The right doesn't even give these issues the time of day. That's, you know, another reason I'm on the left. And that and the right discriminates on religious grounds as well. You know, I've noticed that. If I'm speaking out against abortion, they'll listen. But as soon as I offer the solution to the crisis, they're saying, do you worship in a church or in a temple? There's a distinction between right and left hand. Do you work for your salvation? You know, give me the third degree. None of these issues are brought up when the issue is abortion. Only when we give them the solution to the crisis does religion seem to matter to them. And to me, just I always see a bunch of bigots with double standards. They're, you know, the Christians, they may be anti-Catholic, homophobic, anti-Semitic, but they're willing to listen to put aside their religious differences and listen to Dr. Wilkie, whom I believe is Catholic, when Dr. Wilkie is arguing for the personhood of the unborn. They're willing to listen to Nat Hentoff, who's not only Jewish and atheist, but a political liberal. 
So they're willing to put aside their differences, even political differences, to listen to those outside of their faith or on the other end of the political spectrum and those with no, with, do not believe in God. But when it comes to animals, if the message were coming from a Christian conservative, if it were coming from G. Gordon Liddy or Bob Dornan or Robert Smith of New Hampshire, former senator, or uh, Bob Barker for that matter, persons who have won PETA awards and are conservative Republicans, would you be listening? There doesn't seem to be any logic for their reluctance to take to animal issues. And it's not like they're being converted to another religion. They can listen to the voice in their own tradition. It's not sectarianism that's motivating because they're willing to, on abortion, they're willing to listen to others outside of their religion. It's obviously not politics either if they're willing to listen to people on the other side of the political spectrum. So I'm not sure what it is that is preventing them from looking at animal rights as a serious solution of the abortion crisis and these two causes joining forces. I'm making the statement that you're not going to be able to end the abortion crisis until you cease to kill animals. So one is dependent upon the other. Which one is, of course, subject to debate? In the heartland of America, they may be indifferent to the butchering of animals, but they're not going to take the butchering of the unborn lightly. That was what someone on Usenet pointed out. Despite what liberals on the coast may think and the Hollywood elite and so forth, the majority of Americans are not going to stand by and tolerate the butchering of babies. And he was saying that shows how out of touch the elite liberals are with mainstream America. And there may be some truth to that. Part of the problem is that the pro-animal people themselves don't really know how to connect with the pro-life community in this regard. And I've often wondered about that. You know, if you're pro-life, wouldn't you prefer to hear a message from people who share your values, like, you know, faith in God and who are opposed to killing the unborn on human rights grounds, etc.? Or would you prefer to hear a message from cynical, atheist, agnostic types, you know, like Peter Singer or Ingrid Newkirk or Bill Maher, for that matter? Who would you prefer to hear the message from? But I'm taking the position, we, you know, we first we got into the killing of animals, and then all these other crises, including the abortion crisis, see how the world will change and how these crises will come to an end. PETA and animal rights literature, they rarely reach out to the religious community. PETA began to do so, but even then, when Bruce Friedrich, who um, was with the Catholic worker community and in a Catholic worker house in Washington, D.C., the Dorothy Day Catholic worker house in Washington, D.C., Bruce was saying how PETA sent out literature to Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and these other religious leaders saying, you know, Jesus was an Essene and the Essenes were vegetarian, so the Christians should be telling their followers to be vegan and not to consume animal products, etc., etc. He was saying that the reason for doing so was he said we want to piss off the fundamentalists and I was like well I can appreciate where he's coming from in this regard it's like we should be looking at reaching out to them as potential allies not trying to alienate them there's enough of that going around already there isn't enough communication between these two groups and neither side seems to understand the other and that's part of the problem well Vasu we've covered an awful lot of territory both about vegetarianism and abortion about eastern and western religions Again, your books are encyclopedic in their contents, and I think as people could tell by just listening to you, you've got a command of a wide range of literature, history, of ethics, of logic. It's impressive. If they pick up, they shall not hurt or destroy animal rights and vegetarianism in the Western religious traditions. If they pick up the liberal case against abortion, which may go against some of their assumptions, I think they'll find closely reasoned, closely evidenced arguments that are worth engaging with. If they do that, I think the world will be better for it. I thank you so much for the research, the clearly the passion that you've brought to this, and I thank you for joining us for Spirit in Action. Thank you for taking the time to interview me. We've been visiting today with Vasu Murti for Spirit in Action. You can hear the first hour of my interview with Vasu at northernspiritradio.org, and you can find more info on him and his writings by following the link on my site. 
I hope you found this whole discussion illuminating. I know Vasu Murti's research and insights have opened whole vistas for me. I've spent almost all of my adult life with the assumption that concern about life in terms of war, capital punishment, and care for animals were on one side of a fence, and concern for the unborn was on the opposite side of that fence. And I count it as a failing on my side that I didn't realize that there were people out there seamlessly combining them, as the folks in the consistent life movement do. I should have known better, especially because I was fond of a song from back then I heard about the mid-70s by a group from Tyler, Texas called Gladstone. The song seems to question conventional wisdom and values about marriage and war, pushing the liberal edge of the time, but also questioning an acceptance of abortion simply because it was now legal. We'll take you out for today's Spirit in Action with a fine song by Gladstone, a piece of paper. I'll meet you next week for Spirit in Action. In order to form a more perfect union, a man and a woman become husband and wife. A piece of paper says they'll start a new life. A piece of paper says it's all right. A man, one tenth of his gold. A piece of paper says he's redeemed his soul. A piece of paper says he's all right. You know, paper is only paper, and you know, people, well, they try to be good.
The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song.